Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. It is uh, great to be gathered together in person and online. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you've had a, a good week this week. We had a great time with some of our men last night gathered together. If you wonder what that trailer was, those of you who came in person out in the parking lot, we were throwing axes at a piece of wood. It uh, doesn't sound like the smartest thing to do in a contained environment, but we were doing it. <laughs> and he won. That guy won. There was one guy uh, I threw against a guy that was Todd Sprouse. I don't know if Todd's here today or not, but Todd and I were in there together. We just walked up in line at the same time. I said, why don't we go against each other? Afterwards, he told me, oh yeah, one time in Europe, I was throwing two axes. And I'm like, that guy smoked me. He whipped my tail and throwing these. I couldn't even get one to stick into the board. And he's like, bullseye, bullseye, bullseye. Anyway, right. That's not why we're gathered together. We're gathered together today to praise Jesus. And we have a lot to be grateful for, don't we? I know this can be discouraging times with all that's going on economically and in our country presidentially and racially and all the things happening, but man, we've been saved by grace. We've got a Savior who's on His throne. We've got some, a lot of things to be grateful for. And you look around this room, there are other people in this room that are on the same mission as you. You might not know them, but isn't it great to just see that there's some people here that might not look like me, they might not have all the same thoughts I have, but we both love Jesus. Can we get an amen for that? Amen. But I know some of you are discouraged. These are somewhat discouraging times. Hope is running low, and I'm going to pray for you today. I believe that God's got a special message for you. And uh, this is, you know, I bring a message of good news of Jesus Christ every week. I preach the same story every week forever. But uh, I'm going to give you some bad news right now. If you're not discouraged today, you will be at some point in the future. But we're going to have some good news in today's message that should help you through those times of discouragement. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to open up the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much that we can gather in your name. Thank you that, that you move up and down these aisles, that you move in homes and in Starbucks and in wherever people are joining us online all around the world. Father, will your spirit be present in these moments where we open up the scriptures? Will you open our hearts, open our minds, transform us? I don't know if you just want to encourage somebody or if you want to rebuke somebody or if you want to challenge, save somebody. God, will you do what only you can do? Will you take my words and use them and have whatever conversation you want to have and whoever's heart and whatever story, they might not even know any idea what's going on, but will you speak? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, oftentimes things don't go as we plan. And that can be the simple mundane things of life, or it can be the big picture things of life, how things are going in a marriage, how things are going in a career, or how things are just going on your to-do list. And I mentioned throwing axes with Todd yesterday. Uh, the lady told me, when I, she said, if you really want to stick into the wood, you've got to really give it some ump. And I was a little hesitant to give it some ump because I didn't want the thing to bounce back to me. And I said, well, I don't want that thing bouncing back. She goes, I've only seen that twice. And I was thinking, so it has happened. It can happen right here. Last week was our first week gathering together in person in about seven months. And so on Saturday, I tried to have a pretty low-key day. I was organizing my closet. That's not, a very, that's not a high stress activity, just so you know. I'm taking shirts from the top shelf. I'm putting them on the bottom shelf. I was about 10 feet up in the air. I was standing on a stool, and I hadn't thought about physics in that moment. But I put all my weight on one corner of the stool because I didn't want to move a pair of shoes that I had on the stool. Next thing I know, all my weight is tipping backwards. The stool flips out from underneath me. The shoes actually went flying up into some shirts. On my way down, I'm yelling, ah, like death roar. No one's home at our house except for my oldest daughter. She's up in her room. I can hear music playing up there. I'm screaming. I hit my head on the way down. The wood shelf whacks me in the back of the head. I didn't feel good. So I touched the back of my head. There's blood on the back of my head. 
Oh man, I'm gonna shake this off. I had plans for the rest of the day. I was gonna go running, I had some other projects around the house, I was gonna finish the closet. So I finished the closet, just so you know, I'm very A-type personality, I gotta get this done. I go on the driveway, I'm throwing some things away from the closet, and I feel a little dizzy. I was like, all right, maybe I shouldn't go on a run. I go inside, I call my oldest daughter, Ella, come down here, look at the back of my head. She comes down, why do you want me to look at the back of your head? Because I'm not trying to up the back of my head game, okay? There's something back there. Can you look and see? And so she looks at the back of my head, and she's like, what did you do? I was like, I fell. She goes, that was that noise. And I was like, you heard me? You heard the death yell? You heard me crash? Did you not wonder, honey, is he dead? Like, you didn't have, like, a, a thought in that moment? She's like, it's bad. It's bad. you got to go. So for the next several hours of that day, I didn't go on a run. I didn't get to do the rest of my projects. I'm laying there with ice on my head. And you can get discouraged with simple stuff like that. So now you know why I wasn't throwing the axe harder today, yesterday. Second week, I'm not going to get an axe in my shin. Like, I'm not going to do that. But, but oftentimes things don't go as planned. I didn't get to do what I wanted for the rest of that day because things didn't go as planned. That can be discouraging. The word discouraging maybe brings up different thoughts in lots of our minds. It actually comes from the root word courage. And dis on the front of it, it means opposite. It's the opposite of courage. And so it's to lack courage. It's why oftentimes when we're discouraged, we lack motivation. And maybe we're even tempted to give up. There's a lot of reasons to be discouraged right now. Global pandemic, who knew that was going to happen? Most people didn't have that in their plan. When you were to 2020 in January and you're thinking, what am I going to do this year? Probably weren't thinking, I want to take a little shutdown for about six or seven months. Everybody's going to be closed up. Political tension, we could probably see some of that coming. Economic downturn, probably didn't see that happening. Things going on in your own relationships. I bet you there are a lot of things that have happened that you didn't have planned. There's a lot of ways that we can be discouraged. But when we open up the scriptures today in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to see how to overcome discouragement as a follower of Jesus. These words of hope I'm going to give you really are only for people that are followers of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then your hope is to place your faith in Jesus Christ. He'll change everything in your life, and I'll tell you how you can do that today too. But if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to be asking yourself as we open up 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to walk through the whole chapter, how can I overcome discouragement? In times when I want to give up, in times when I lack courage, how can I have courage when I'm discouraged? And so 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to pick up in verse 1. We left off last week in chapter 3. We were talking as the Apostle Paul told, told us, if you want genuine spiritual transformation, authentic change in your life, then your heart has to be changed. It starts on the inside. And then God's looking to change hearts. We saw in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 16 and verse 9 that God's looking throughout the whole earth through whose heart is wholly devoted to him. We didn't talk about it last week, but many of us have heard the verse in Proverbs chapter 4, guard your heart, it's the wellspring of life. We hear Jesus, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. God's coming after your heart. He cares about your heart. Transformation begins in the heart, but how does it continue as a follower of Jesus? It continues as we behold the glory of Jesus. Remember last week we talked about how it can't just be any Jesus. It's not just your version of Jesus and my version of Jesus, and we got social justice Jesus, we got patriotic Jesus, we got you know moralistic Jesus, we've got grace-giving Jesus, we've got the loving Jesus, the wrathful Jesus, Jesus that overturns tables, Jesus that comes and says, I'll come to me. You can't just pick the piece you like. There's one Jesus. There's one Jesus that left heaven, came to earth. There's one Jesus that's the one way to get to the Father. There's one Jesus who died on the cross for your sins, and as you behold that Jesus, he transforms your life. Amen. And so in that, Paul was talking to us about what's generally true for all Christians. In chapter 4, he gets really personal. He talks about his own 
struggles with discouragement. And you'll notice there's a phrase in here a couple times. I won't read all 18 verses right now, but the, fir- the phrase comes in verse 1, and it comes again later in verse 16. We don't lose heart. That means to lack courage. We don't get discouraged is another way that he's saying it. Look what he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, so in light of the new covenant ministry where he's coming after our hearts, we were transformed by beholding Jesus. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, it's not because we earned it. God's gracious. He gives it to us. We do not lose heart. You might underline that. But we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we will commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Even if our gospel is veiled, even if people don't get it, it is veiled, and that's imagery from chapter 3, it is veiled to those who are perishing, those who don't know Jesus yet. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake, there's our message, and there's how we proclaim it. For God said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power that belongs to God and not to us. Listen to this. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Now listen, if anybody had reason to be discouraged, it's this guy. Did you read what he said? Afflicted in every way. So afflicted physically, afflicted emotionally, afflicted spiritually, financially, afflicted in every way. But that's not it. Perplexed. This is confusing, the things that are happening. Persecuted, struck down, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, what did he say in verse 1? We do not lose heart. Those of you who have your Bibles, you might look down in verse 16. He says it again. So, we do not lose heart. He's showing us a theme here. We're, we're not discouraged, but, but there's a lot of circumstances around us. Everything around him is falling apart. How come he's not falling apart? And he tells us in this passage, he's got hope. Hope's one of those things that we're running short on right now. A follower of Jesus, we're told in the Scriptures, we're supposed to give an answer for the hope that we have. Sometimes you don't feel like you have much hope. I read a story this week about a submarine. It was several years back that had, had sunk off of the shore of Massachusetts. And the submarine went down so fast, it trapped the whole crew that was there. It was like a, a metal prison for them. And people were trying to do everything they could to rescue these people. They didn't, by the way. That's, I'm not going to give away the end of the story right now and just tell you that those people all died in that submarine. The story that I was reading is about one of the deep-sea divers that was swimming around this submarine as the ship was sunk, and trying to find a way in, trying to come up with a way. What, is there a way we can find to get these people out of here? And as he was swimming by, he heard some tapping on the steel. And he swam up to it, and he put his head on it, his, hel- you know, his helmet on there. He put his head on there. And he could hear the tapping. It was Morse code. And he knew it. He didn't you know, write it down or anything, but in his head he decoded it. He said the person just kept tapping over and over again. Is there any hope? Is there any hope? Believer in Jesus Christ, for you there is always hope. We're told to give an answer for the hope that we have. We have a world that's crying out for hope right now. How can we do that when we feel like we're low on hope? Our passage tells us 
I believe there's at least three eternal truths in this chapter of Scripture that talked about how to get through discouragement. The first one is this. We have a powerful message and a critical mission. We have a powerful message and a critical mission. Paul talked about the message when he says, we declare to you Jesus Christ. He's talking about the good news about Jesus, God's Son leaving heaven, coming to earth, dying for our sins, rising from the dead, offering us life. So that's our message. We declare to you, and we're your servants. And so we come to you, and we give you that message. And he talks about how powerful this message is. Go back to verses 5 and 6. Look at verses 5 and 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. If we're just giving a TED Talk, that's not a whole lot of hope. But Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake, for God who said, and get this, let light shine out of darkness. He's referring back to Genesis chapter 1. But light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give, and now he's using this imagery of light again, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now we've just read chapter 3, if you are with us last week. And talked about the glory that, that Moses would have. He had to veil his face, that we have even greater glory. We get to behold Jesus. He's referring back to that imagery here about the gospel message that is, that is the light to, the, to this dark world. But he starts off with that imagery from Genesis chapter 1. I don't know if you know Genesis chapter 1 or not, but what happens in Genesis chapter 1 is that the earth is formless and void and darkness covers the earth. And do you know where light came from? God spoke. That's power. He spoke light into existence. And it's interesting if you look at the imagery of light throughout the Bible. Did you know that the Bible begins with light and it ends with light? Let me read you a, a verse in, in Revelation chapter 22. It'll be on the screen in verse 5. It says, and talking about the new heavens and the new earth, and night will be no more. Okay, night owls, I'm so sorry. They will need no light of lamp or sun. Okay, no more Duke Power Energy Bill, all God's people said. Amen. All right. But there's no sun. Wait, there's no night, but there's no sun. So where does the light come from? Get this next line. For the Lord God will be their light, and he will reign forever and ever. So God that dwells in unapproachable light is going to light heaven. Like, just let your mind wrap around. We don't need any flashlights, not light, no light switches. God's going to be there. First John tells us that God is light. In him there is no darkness. So in heaven, God's going to light that place. And so we get at the beginning of creation, God spoke light into existence. At the end of the Bible, we get that God is the light that's going to light that place. And you know, in between Genesis chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 22, we have about 200 different images of light that are given to us in the Bible. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The gospel here is talked about as a, a light message, not because it's light and weight, but because it shines light into darkness. And here he says about this message, let there be light, and there was light. Genesis chapter 1. Then he refers to it, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that's going to light all of heaven and the face of Jesus Christ. Here the Apostle Paul is talking about the light that transforms our lives. I don't know this for sure, but it'd be hard to think that he wasn't thinking of his own conversion. If you've read Acts chapter 9, it talks about how he was persecuting the church, and he goes from being a persecutor of the church to being persecuted for the sake of the church. Because what happens is as he's on his way to persecute the church and arrest Christians, God stops him with a light, and that light blinds him, and for three days he can't see, and after three days God opens not only his eyes physically, but opens the eyes of his heart to who Jesus Christ is. He places his faith in Jesus. He's baptized. God tells him, now you've got a mission to go and share this message for the rest of your life. And he tells Paul specifically, a Jew of the Jews, to be bringing the gospel to Gentiles. 
And he tells them, you're going to suffer. And here you've got a guy who, what did verses 8 and 9 say? He's perplexed, persecuted, struck down, afflicted in every way, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. But he's telling us, we got a powerful message. If your life's been changed by that message, you say amen. And your life's been transformed by that. You know that message is powerful. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 tells us the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is the power of God unto salvation, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. It's a powerful message. It changed your life. Now it's been given to you, it says in this passage, in a jar of clay. That's in your life. A glorious message in a fragile container. To be carried to this world, it's a powerful message, the message of Jesus as we serve those that are around us. I saw an incredible illustration of this this week. I watched the movie 1917. I don't know if you've seen this movie or not. It won several awards. It's British, so they talk funny. But otherwise, it's really good. Sorry, Pastor Scott Mason. But the gist of the story, and I won't tell you the end, I won't ruin it, but I'm going to give you some of the details, is there's these two Lance Corporals. It's a low-ranking officer. And their, their names are Schofield and Blake. And in the beginning of the movie, it just zooms in on these two guys, and they get called in by the general. The general is their commander. He's got all the authority and all the power. And as they're walking in, you can see that they realize the general's the one calling them in. They start straightening their collar, like, oh, they're going to see the general. This must be important. And they're going in there. They don't know what's going to happen, what the mission is. As soon as they walk in, the general says, which one of you is Blake? He acknowledges himself. He goes, you have a brother in the second Devons. This is Devonshire. The British guys talk funny. And so the second Devons, you know, get these. He says, I do, Lieutenant Blake. And he says, is he still alive? And the general says, to my knowledge, he is. And with your help, we'll keep it that way. Then he begins to tell them how his brother and 1,600 other men are headed into a, a, a command that's going to destroy them. It's certain death. And he says, but what needs to happen is I need you to deliver a message to them. And he takes out an envelope. And you need to deliver this message before sundown tomorrow morning. If you don't, 1,600 men will die, including your brother. Do you know what they do next? I'm going to tell you what they don't do. They don't take the letter and say, you know what, we really need to evaluate this letter. Let's get a study together and study the letter and see whether or not the general really wants us to go and do this. In fact, if we get a big enough platoon, we can probably figure out what it says in Greek and Hebrew. They didn't do that in the movie, so I'm not ruining that part of the movie for you. They didn't really debate and strategize and decide, how are we going to fund this mission? Like, how are we going to do these things? You know what they did? They went. In fact, what happens, oh, it's actually interesting if you watch the nuances of it. One guy goes. The other guy follows him, but one guy, Blake, goes. You know why? Because his brother's out there. The other guy, Schofield, says, wait, wait, we need to talk about this. And you know what Blake says? Why? And he starts running. And then Schofield says, maybe we should wait until after dark. And Why? Like, no. We've got a, a powerful message. It could save 1,600 lives. And my brother's one of them. And Blake went because it was personal. I've asked our church for years, do you have one person in this city that you're praying will come to Christ? Just one, just one. It's got to be personal, the message does. 1,600 men. Do you know how many people, by their own profession, in the triangle, are headed for a Christless eternity? 1.6 million. We have a more powerful message than Blake had, but Blake was urgent. And I won't ruin the movie, but you know what happens over the next little while? The general actually told them there won't be any resistance. The Germans have pulled back. I don't want to ruin the movie, but there was resistance, or else what are you watching for two hours, right? 
And so the very first place they go is a, a base that appears to be abandoned by Germans, but there's a tripwire in there, and they're underground, and they hit the tripwire, and Schofield goes up, he gets covered by rubble, and he can't see anything, but everything's crashing on them. And so he comes to this valley he's got to jump across, but he can't see anything, and Blake says, trust me, jump. He's got to continue to take steps of faith. And then for two hours we see setbacks and sacrifices and discouragements physically, emotionally, in every way that you can imagine, but they keep going. Do you know why? Because they have a powerful message to save the lives of 1,600 men. Men that think that they're headed in the right direction, but their, their path leads to death. And they've got a critical mission to get that message to them. Now, can you imagine if Blake, when he heard that message, had gone out and come up with excuses for why not to go tell his brother? Like, as a moviegoer. I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm not going any of that stuff. Like, if you're just sitting in the movies, remember back in the day when we could sit in the movies? You're sitting in the movies... And you're watching this. Can you imagine what people would have done if Blake had gone, pop message, my brother's going to die, and he said one of these things. I wrote a list of things that he could have possibly said. You could say, I've never shared this message before. What if I do it wrong? What, would you, what do you think the audience would have done? He said that. He could say, I think I'll just try to live out the message, and then my brother will see that I'm headed in a different direction, and then he'll ask me about the direction I'm headed in, and then hopefully he'll head in my direction. But I'm not going to tell him. He could say, I don't know if my brother will listen. What if he doesn't like the message? He could say, I think what the general wrote is not that politically correct. Let's change it a little bit so it's more palatable for my brother. He could say, I'm not the strongest soldier. Let's run a boot camp. We'll find out who's the strongest soldier. Then we'll pool our resources together. We'll send that soldier, and then we'll pretend like we all are doing something. There's a lot of reasons he could have come up with that anyone, Christian or not, would have gone, what's wrong with this guy? And I think those excuses sound pretty familiar to many of us because we've made them about the gospel. But you think about a powerful message, we're not just talking about saving your life, we're talking about eternity. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. We've been given that eternal life, all of us who said amen, been given that eternal life, and then our commanding officer says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore, Go. I have all the authority. I've got all the power. I've got a mission for you. Go. Make disciples. That's your mission. Not just converts. Make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Everything you know about the spiritual life, you share that with them, and I'll be with you. I'm going to manifest my presence with you as you live out the mission. I'll be with you. There will be resistance, which leads us to our next point. You've got a powerful message and a critical mission, but there's going to be resistance. But here's the good news. God has a gospel purpose in all of your pain. God has a gospel purpose, not just a purpose, a gospel purpose in all of your pain, if you're a follower of Jesus. Now, if you've seen people grieve, mourn, go through suffering, they don't have Jesus, I'm not saying there's hope in that. That just stinks. I would give you an assignment when I'm trying to unpack it, but we can talk more about it maybe in another message or something, but each of you as followers of Jesus should go to a funeral for somebody you know that doesn't know Jesus and the people leading the funeral don't know Jesus. It'll overwhelm your heart with grief for the lack of hope. They'll talk about things. They'll talk about what a great guy was, how much he loved some sports team, loved being on the boat, making memories with his family, loved whatever, nice guy. He's in a better place, which is just language to make us feel better in that moment. There's no reason, no substance to believe that's true. There's a lack of hope. But if you're a follower of Jesus... Even in the face of death, there's hope. Amen? Believers, you always have hope. 
But your, your leader, your Lord, Jesus Christ, told you, in this world you will have trouble. There will be resistance. But then he says in John 16, 33, take heart. It's the positive way to say what Paul says in our passage. We don't lose heart. Paul's saying, take heart, have courage. I've overcome the world. You already have victory through me. Paul says in Acts chapter 14, he said, after he's stoned, left for dead, goes and preaches somewhere else, starts telling churches, hey, it's through many trials and tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. There's a lot of struggle. So what's God doing in that? This passage gives us at least three things, but several things for sure. Look, and I left off in, in verse 10 before. Verse 10 starts off, always carrying the body of death, the death of Jesus, so that, that means the reason's going to come next. So maybe underline it. So that, here's the reason we carry the death of Jesus, the suffering servant in our bodies, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So here's a reason to put the gospel of Jesus on display. How does that happen in our suffering? Well, let me tell you. It's not because you came up with some cheesy hashtag when you're struggling, you know, you find out you got cancer, you find out something, you lost your job, my pain, God's gain. No. I'm not saying to do that. Please, if you didn't see me, it was a sarcastic face, okay? If we weren't zoomed in, don't do that. That's not the, that's not the way. That's just cheesy. But you know what people see in your suffering? Where your hope is. And so you find out you got cancer, you find out you lose your job, you find out some difficult thing, physically, emotionally, whatever's going on, and whatever that suffering is, it reveals your hope. And you know, as a follower of Jesus, our hope is not in this, if you got cancer, it's not, your hope's not in healing. Hey, Jesus healed a lot of people on this earth. Healed lepers, blind people, lame people, all kinds of people. Do you know what they all have in common? They died. He raised Lazarus from the dead, John chapter 11. Do you know what happened to Lazarus? He died again. If he didn't, we'd all be going to hear that dude speak. He's dead. Our hope's not in this place. Our hope is in what Paul's going to talk about in just a minute, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which guarantees our resurrection. Jesus is risen. All right, it's not Easter, but y'all got to be a little peppier than that. Come on. Jesus Christ is risen. If you're a follower of Jesus, so will you be. You have hope, and that gets revealed in our suffering. It's where your hope is gets shown. Paul talks about that. The life of Jesus may be seen. Verse 11, for, there's another reason. Another way you can translate the word for is because. For, we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that, underline that, there's another reason. The life of Jesus may also be manifested in us. And so this repetition, the same thing, that the gospel will be put on display for the sake of lost people. So, death is at work in us, but life, not in us, in you. Here's another reason. For the sake of other people. Your suffering isn't just for you. Your suffering is for the sake of others. We saw in chapter 1. We're comforted so that we can comfort you in your times of trials. And we see that where God's power is put on display in our suffering. And you see lots of verses in the Bible about suffering. How about this one that nobody likes? James chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, talks about rejoice in all your trials of any kinds. Why? It produces perseverance. Now, I just want delivery. God's power gets put on display whether he rescues us out of our pain or he delivers us through our pain. He tells Paul later in this book, no, I'm not going to take away your thorn in the flesh. No, I'm not going to relieve your physical suffering. I'm using it to do a work, and my grace is better than healing. Hmm. I don't know. I kind of want the healing. But isn't his grace good? Verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what was written, I believe, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. There's that resurrection. For, underline, 
It is all for your sake. And so we saw that repetition. So that, underline, as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. More to be grateful for God's grace in the midst of our struggles. So, verse 16, underline that. Here's another reason. There's lots of reasons for our suffering through here. They all have a gospel purpose. We do not lose heart. There it is again. Take courage. Don't be discouraged. Though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So what God's saying is not only am I using this to do a work in other people's lives, not only am I doing this to put the gospel on display to lost people's lives, I'm doing a work in your heart. Your inner self, what he was talking about in the last chapter, when he's transformed your heart, your suffering, and it could be thousands of things God's doing. Like the thorn in the flesh we just mentioned. He tells Paul to deal with sin in your life, pride. For some of us to reveal God's love, cast your cares, if you don't have any cares, care, cast your cares on me, I care for you. To deal with your anxiety, don't be anxious in everything. Be grateful, prayer, supplication. Let your request be known to God. It'll give you the peace that surpasses all understanding. And so in all these different trials, he's doing different works in our heart to transform us to be more like Jesus. Because in our suffering, he pushes us to where we hope. Where do we hope? It's in Jesus, we behold his glory, we become more like Jesus. He's doing an inner work in us. I know this to be true, not just because I read it in the Bible. My own experience, I've seen it in other people's lives. I told you, church, those of you who were here a few weeks ago, we had our outdoor service, and, and we paused in our outdoor service. I don't know if you remember this. We prayed for another church in our community, Journey Church. Their pastor, Jimmy Carroll, at that time was in the intensive care unit. And people have asked, did he have COVID? He didn't have COVID. Um, he had gotten sick. Uh, broke a rib, built, led to an infection, ended up having pneumonia, and a couple weeks ago, he died. Uh, Jimmy's a good friend of mine. Probably the most kingdom-minded pastor I've ever met. My favorite pastor in this city. There are other guys that love you, love you guys, but Jimmy is my favorite. I remember the first time I had breakfast with Jimmy. We hadn't moved here to the city yet, and we were talking, and I just asked him. They had planted Journey Church about, uh, about 18 months ahead of us, and I said, Jimmy, I'm not sure we should plant this church. We want to make it all about Jesus. We want to connect people to Jesus for life change. We don't want to get caught up in a lot of the religious distractions, political distractions. We want to make a big deal about Jesus. We want to see real lives transformed from the inside out. And I said, where should we plant this church? You know what most pastors say? Zebulun needs some churches like that. Churches tend to be, pastors especially, tend to be kind of territorial. These are my people. This is my thing. You know what Jimmy said? He said, you should plant right by us. He told, us where they were, he told me where they were meeting, and he told me other spots that were by there because there were so many lost people in that area. He said, we need a church like that. I remember one time riding in the car with he and his wife, Beverly. We were in his college campus, and we were talking, and she looked at me, and she said, Jimmy Carroll's the only man that I've ever loved. And for the past four years, Beverly has been going through a battle with cancer. And pray for their church. Pray for them. They're struggling right now. Not as a church, but just in the emotions of that. And, Jimmy was our primary caregiver, and so you can imagine before he was in the intensive care unit um, what, what he was dealing with. And they did a video for their church. Many people have seen it. Thousands of people have seen it. It's gone around. And in it, he talks about suffering. One of the stunt lines I love that he says, he says, one of his favorite authors is A.W. Tozer. And Tozer says that the most important thing about you is what you think about God. And Jimmy said about his pain, he said, don't compare our pain. With, everybody experiences their pain different. We don't need to compare our pain with each other. But he said, but don't decide what you think about God when you're in the midst of pain. Decide what you think about God, whether you're on the mountaintop or you're somewhere that seems normal to you. Decide then. And he said, you know what I know to be true about God? God loves me. God's got a plan for me. 
God is good. Even when the circumstances around me seem to say that he's not good, I already know that he's good. And so we cling to that. We're in the midst of darkness. And when he was saying those words, encouraging my soul so much, because I watched the video after my friend died. And I was discouraged. I texted one of our deacons in our church. I said to him, you know, I we got this vision for reaching the city. We know that we can't do it as a South Bridge on our own. I thought that Journey and Jimmy would be such a key piece of that. Now he's gone. That was how I was feeling in that moment. And a deacon wrote me back and said, well, some people's lives are like a tsunami and they just hit you. And some people are like a ripple effect. Maybe Jimmy will be more like a ripple effect in the way that we function as a church, of being kingdom-minded. In the way that we function as a church, of just one of the things that Jimmy always had this mentality, it's not going to be my fault you don't know about Jesus. What if we all had that mentality? What if we had that ripple effect in our life? See, what, what God did through Jimmy's suffering is he put the gospel of Jesus on display for those that were lost. He encouraged my heart as another follower of Jesus, and I know that God was doing a work in his heart because he shared it in the video as he was walking through it with his wife. It's real. God's got a gospel purpose in all your pain, follower of Jesus. You've got a critical message, powerful message, a critical mission. And then he tells us in, the, in this passage, and, and I'm just going to gloss over this. We're going to set it up for next week about the need that we have to, to focus on eternity, that we have an eternal glory that outweighs any temporary troubles. An eternal glory that outweighs any temporary troubles. And I just want your heart to be encouraged by this. If you grasp this, we're going to unpack it more next week, but if you grasp this, you get this not into your mind, not in your notes as you're taking notes today, but if this gets in your heart, this change everything. Look what he says in verses 17 and 18. Second Chronicles, or Second Corinthians, I'm not even right, not in the right testament. Anyway, Second Corinthians chapter four, verses 17 and 18. For this light momentary affliction. What? Did you read verses eight and nine? Every kind of affliction? So whatever you're going through, he knows what you're talking about. And we just read in this passage. We don't need to go to chapter 11 where he talks about being flogged five times, where he talks about being stoned multiple times, where he talks about being robbed, where he talks about being persecuted, where he talks about being lied about, where he talks about being betrayed by believers, where he talks about being all the emotional stress that he has. We don't need to read that. Just read this passage. Persecuted. The guy was stoned, left for dead. He said, light and momentary. <laughs> this guy's just a lot tougher than me, maybe. Nope, that's not the key. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal... We're being prepared for eternity? An eternal weight, and so you see the contrast, light and momentary, weight of glory, beyond all comparison. How does that happen? As we look, not to the things that are seen, temporary, but to the things that are unseen, eternal. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In fact, you can go back through that list in, in verses 8 and 9. Look, look, just do it for a second. Look at verse 8 and 9. Afflicted in every way, that's temporary, but not crushed, that's eternal, because you have a hope, believers. Perplexed, that's temporary. But not driven to despair, why not? Because of our eternal perspective, that's eternal. Persecuted, that's temporary. Not destroyed, why? Because you are an eternal being. You can't be destroyed, honestly. None of, even if you're not a believer in Jesus, you're going to live for eternity somewhere. And he says in verse 18, not looking at things that are seen, that's temporary, but things that are unseen, that is eternal. Can I just tell you this truth? People that have an eternal perspective live differently. How many of you watched a football game yesterday? How many of you watched a game? UNC, NC State game, sorry, NC Staters, and different games, everybody else, you're like, now I'm discouraged. I was doing great through this message. You watch your game. How many of you get intense when you're watching a game? Anybody be honest? I mean, anybody do that? 
okay? Throwing stuff at the TV, the referee can't even see why is he out there, like all that stuff. You ever watched a game and you knew the outcome and your team won? Doesn't that change the way you watch that game? I mean, I could be one of the most annoying people to watch a sporting event with. And one of my friends I'm looking at right now, uh, he told me yesterday at the men's event, he said, I watched the presidential debate like that. Like, I'm just, say this, do that, back and forth. So maybe it's not sports for you. But if you, if you watch something, you know the outcome, it changes the way you watch it. I've watched games before where I knew the outcome. I don't watch Lions games because I always know the outcome. They all lose. That's my, that's my team here. I'll watch, sometimes there's teams I pick that like, they actually win a game. And when I watch that team, it doesn't matter, what, it doesn't matter if the ref blows a call. For some reason, I don't throw stuff at the TV. I'm not yelling at anybody about their job and how they were not qualified. They must have lied on their resume. Like, none of that's happening in that moment. The quarterback throws an interception, somehow this works out because I know the end. Believer in Jesus Christ, part of our discouragement comes because we're not thinking about Jesus wins. He's on his throne. Everything's under his feet. And so you think about the election. Listen, there's been good kings and bad kings all throughout history. God's on his throne. God is sovereignly ruling and reigning. And guess what? He's ruling and reigning not just in America. He's ruling and reigning in socialist countries and communist countries and countries that are being persecuted and countries where there's freedom and democratic countries. All authority, everything's put under his feet, and we're on his team. If you have an eternal perspective, it changes the way we look at everything that happens on this earth. If you get that in your heart, well, it'll change everything. Father, we come before you. And I pray, God, that you'd put eternity on our minds. I pray right now, if there's anybody who doesn't know your son, Jesus Christ as Savior, that you'd put in their hearts a thought, what's going to happen for eternity that they can't shake? They can't go to sleep at night without thinking about eternity. They wouldn't be able to, to go to the, the restaurant and have a conversation about a game or some nothing conversation without thinking about eternity. God, would you overwhelm their hearts with eternity and would you save them? Will you draw them to yourself? Will you have them call upon your son, Jesus Christ, to be their Savior? If you don't know how to do that, let me just tell you what you do is you confess your sins to Jesus. He knows them already. You're not telling him news. You're acknowledging them. And you're acknowledging that you know that those sins separate you from God, but that Jesus is the way to get to the Father because of what he did on the cross. And if you want to ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior, will you pray this prayer with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I confess my sin to you. I believe that your son Jesus died to give me forgiveness. And I want to spend eternity with you. I want your forgiveness. I want to ask you right now to be my Savior. The Bible says that if you just prayed that prayer, that all of eternity is rejoicing with you. And I want to pray for those that are already believers. Father, we come before you, and you've given us this hope of eternal life. But so many times we can look at the circumstances, we can look at what's happening in this world, we can start thinking that we have no hope. But you've given hope. Not only have you given hope, you've given us a reason to be here, and that reason matters, and it makes a difference, and we've got a powerful message that transforms lives, that transformed ours. And Father, will you, will you keep us on that mission? Will you remind us today, recalibrate us? We don't gather together just for the sake of being in a building or being online and just being together and liking each other, but to regroup, to be healed from wounds, to be encouraged, to be rebuked, to be challenged, to be reminded of our, our commanding officer's orders. Father, will you do that in this moment? In the hearts of each one of us, reignite our hearts for you transform our lives for you. It's in Jesus' name I pray.